Welcome to this week's Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald broadcasting on the 3CR Airways. As we continue our all the good things journey around Australia, we're in Byron Bay region for the next couple of weeks. And just imagine if uh, you were living in the hippest community in the nation, the sort of pressures that are coming through from Airbnb, soaking up the rental stock, combined with the uh, incredible commodification of real estate, the investor incentives. So the people are feeling the pinch. And we're going to settle into uh, a discussion with John Sparks, who's a retired architect and town planner. All right, let's get into it. We are now sitting under a beautiful fig tree here in the Byron community and uh, discussing the ways of the world with John Sparks, who's a retired architect and town planner. Mm -hmm. So, John, uh, how has this increasing commodification of real estate impacted on your work? Um, Because of the value of real estate, I guess, being such a high price, it means that there's not so much to spend on buildings themselves. But this is where we've got to become more efficient. And I think that there's a lot more that goes into the design of a building. I mean, it costs you the same to put a window in a wall in a nice way as it does in an ugly way. So why not use a nice proportion? And why not use simple materials and do it more economically? And that really encourages us to look at what that block of land is in the first place and the value of that block of land and the value in that block of land. I mean, if it has trees, don't get a D9 in and bulldoze the whole lot leave them there and design your house around it so those trees can give you shade. If it has some kind of drainage problem, that problem could be turned into an asset because you could collect the water and use that um, while you live in the house. So there's many ways that you can offset these costs. And so it's working with nature, if you like, uh, akin to what Walter Burley Griffin used to do in, in encompassing the, the design of roads and, and communities and hamlets around the, the natural fall of the land. Absolutely. And the other thing, Walter Burley Griffin went one step further because he used sacred geometry. And if you look at the whole of Canberra, it's based on sacred geometry. You've got the three major hills, and Walter Burley Griffin, of course, adopted the planning principle that you leave the hills because that's what you look at, and you build in the valleys. That's all very well, but then you build in the valleys, but that's where all the water comes, and so you've got to be careful of the flood. So he's incorporated that into the three lake system. And so the whole triangle of Canberra and all of the circles are based on sacred geometry. And why is that? We're in the Byron community, listeners, so we've got to delve into these topics. Everyone talks about sacred geometry. Why is it important in terms of architecture? Because you can do things in a nice way and you can do things in an ugly way. And, I mean, sacred geometry is something that's incorporated in all of nature. You can see it in all of nature. The curves, the beautiful patterns, the flowers, the trees, the energy and the energy lines that we have around here. And, I mean, you have Fibonacci spirals in the seashells. Um, You've got a a double Fibonacci spiral in sunflowers. I mean, it's just all around us. So why not incorporate that into the places that we live in and the places that we build? Well, I'm certainly seeing that in some of the houses we're uh, visiting and staying in here in Byron. There's a a real art and a real... uh 
respect for the home and where it's placed and how people engage with the environment from that very first step out the door and uh, that's something we in Melbourne could certainly uh, do with a little more um, of but it's about having that space and that uh, that planning capacity to uh, incorporate all these various different features and uh, when it comes to a, a bustling community like Byron Bay that the planning system is always um, under a lot of pressure uh, how is the community um, coping? How are the politicians coping with the, the competing aims that are coming in? I hear Airbnb has certainly changed the the, um, the rental market here. You've got developers coming in, both local and international. Um, and then you've got people struggling to, to keep up with the, the cost of living here. Yeah, this is because of the system that we're currently operating under. We're currently operating under a planning system that is fundamentally flawed. And that system is fundamentally flawed because it is based on regulations, it is based on, not based on, strategic planning. So there should be strategic planning. And the best town planner that I ever met was an urban geographer many years ago. Because he looked at the geography first and then looked at what you can do with it. And this is the way that I've always approached buildings, of looking at the block of land and looking at the assets of that block of land. And, the re and even on large scale, in towns that I've designed, in villages that I've designed, you look at the space that's left over after nature has put all of those assets in and those left over spaces, incidentally, we can put a few buildings there. And this is the way you do it, not the way that developers come in and by manipulating regulations then completely devastate all of the native vegetation and all of the natural assets to simply put a staid, ordinary, commonplace, a boring development that has nothing to justify it. And so uh, what are some of the positive developments coming through to sidestep the these uh, you know mono housing estates we see where in some in some sprawling suburbs of Melbourne uh, you've got a, a 55 65 minute commute into work and then you get home and you know there, there's barely a loaf of bread's difference between your wall and your neighbor's wall uh, you know they're crammed in everywhere mm. it's because they've um, I mean many many years ago there was a song it's all made out of cardboard they're all made out of tiki tacky and they all look just the same and this hasn't changed unfortunately that's you know this is the way that developers and um, builders generally follow in looking at size is good you know you've got to have a bigger house it's got to be bigger than your neighbors therefore it's better but of course you get these ugly cement rented walls with ugly looking windows in them and, and uh, you know no eaves and no sun control look at the block of land and look at what you've got and look at what nature has around you and the open spaces the open spaces are the critical thing look where the sun comes from look where the sun goes to look how we can um, look at our climate look at how we can design things with that and with a bit of logic and common sense we can design something that fits in with nature rather than tries to compete with it in a concrete box that then has to spend a lot of money on air conditioning because it's not designed properly. Yeah, well, that, that seems to be so many communities uh, that, that are coming through the master plan phase of things. And when I hear that term master plan, it really scares me in a way because now, uh, you know, we're handing communities over to corporations and uh, 55,000 lot 
developments on the edge of Melbourne and of course you have to drive to a to pick up a bottle of milk um, you have to enter a, a shopping strip you can't just go to your local store anymore so uh, there's a lot of inbuilt bad practices that are occurring there and uh, I know um, you want to try and stay positive but there was something here in in Byron that did hit my radar and that was this West Byron development can you give an overview to that and perhaps uh, uh, bring to light your particular particular perspective on on how we can change. Yeah, we mentioned before the fundamentally flawed planning system in New South Wales. It's based on regulations and that all started in 1979 with the Environmental Planning and Assessment Act, which was a good act that came out, but what messed that up was the Land and Environment Court Act. So that meant that the Land and Environment Court became a full court of law to administer all the regulations in the EP&A Act. And what has happened is that that full court of law has made a lot of solicitors very rich and a lot of barristers and it's good for the legal system but it's no good for getting good planning and because of that any application that you put into council all they're worried about is the regulations and ticking boxes and this will never get us good planning we need planners we need people to put plans down and visions on paper to give us a strategic plan of simply saying this is where we want to go help us get there instead of saying these are the regulations and I don't care what you put into council but we'll find 15 regulations that stop it and this is why we have a fundamentally flawed planning system that should not be based on regulations I mean the Environmental Planning and Assessment Act is about um, 10 millimeters thick last time I saw two volumes that were 100 millimeters thick which were the regulations associated with that act and this is what you've got to get through with the New South Wales system before you get anywhere. So that's the system, unfortunately, that we have to work with. Mm. With West Byron, what's happened is under Part 3A of the Act, you can then bypass all that and take it straight to the minister. And so the minister says, well, that's good. But then the minister is a politician. And politicians are controlled by corporations and corporations are controlled by banks. So, you know, where does that system lead? It doesn't lead very far at all. And under that system, the minister rezoned the whole of West Byron so that we could build anywhere between um, speculation 800 to 1100 houses on a beautiful wetland. It's sand dunes in the middle of a 35 square kilometre wetland and that is critical to the survival of the whole of Byron, including the town centre, West Byron, and the industrial estate. And so uh, concrete's a solution. And so much of the, the, the arguments to uh, these rampant planning decisions is that more supply is going to sort out this housing affordability quagmire we're stuck in. But uh, too often we see that uh, these houses are not built for the local community. Yeah, and I mean, we talk about affordable housing here, but, uh, you know, it's all lip service. I mean, if you want to solve affordable housing, especially in the Byron Shire, get a 100-acre block of land, build 300 houses on it. That's a density of three houses per acre, which is half the normal residential density. You've got plenty of open space. You can prefabricate modular houses to fit on that, and you can do all of this for a cost, I would dare say, of $200,000, $250,000 per house, including land. Now, if you're really serious about affordable housing, that is the way to do it. You are never going to take a normal subdivision and normal building practices 
and simply say this is affordable housing because the marketplace dictates something that's three times that much. Mm, it's, a, it's a tricky equation, isn't it? And for me, uh, even if you did sell those homes for 250000 the first time, it wouldn't be long until people are trying to move into that community and all of a sudden prices will go up to 330 or, or something. I mean, there'd be a trajectory there. So that's where we talk about having a, a land lease fee in place to, to cut that capitalisation rate of, of land prices down. So mm. it, it's, more, it's more in tune with people's wage potential. So, um, but uh, let's switch back to uh, this West Byron story and uh, how they got approval for it. Uh, I know in uh, Victoria, there's quite a lot of movement in, in when situations like this come up in terms of wetlands and uh, you know endangered species and so forth uh, of offset accounting, and uh, th- that's another mechanism to sidestep uh, some of these sort of barriers. So. How do you see that John Sparks uh, playing a role in this West Byron development? With West Byron, they have used offset and they've manipulated the planning system so that they've bypassed all the environmental laws, including Commonwealth environmental environmental laws, um, so that they can destroy all the vegetation and destroy the wetland just to build their houses. So if you want to use the bypass system, and you can simply say, well, look, or this compensation system, we've got so much native vegetation somewhere else therefore we can destroy this bit of native vegetation if you want to use the offset principle that's fine but simply say look we've already got 7,000 houses somewhere else so we don't have to build these 8,000 houses you only have to build 1,000 houses so if you want to use the offset principle I mean don't manipulate it so that it destroys nature keep the environmental laws keep the natural laws and you can capitalise on nature and you can make a lot more money out of that than you can out of destroying it and trying to build your houses. Mm, and I bet the land price they paid for that location wouldn't dictate they had to cram as many houses on that site. Do you know any background on, on how much they pay? Because often that's their excuse. Look, we paid a lot of money for this investment site, so we do need to increase the housing density. Well, this is where the um, manipulators and developers are now moving in on the poor people that have owned this land for the past 10, 15, 20 years because they didn't pay much for it and it's now worth more. Now, um, without going into too much detail, I mean, we could get bogged down on that. But there is a developer that came in, for example, from outside of town and bought up for for $10 million. um, He bought a large chunk of that land. He's recently put some of it back on the market for $30 million. Now, I mean, this is over an 18-month period. Mm. And this is the ridiculous situation that we have with any land development, not only West Byron. These rezoning windfalls, we've, we've got to uh, nip them in the bud because they're really uh, enforcing change on communities and, uh, and delivering these easy profits that really uh, have, have no real skill behind them other than ticking a few boxes and, and having uh, good contacts in the planning minister's office. Absolutely, and it's all politics, it's all manipulation, and it's all money that goes out of the district. What I've tried to do with West Byron is simply look at what nature has already given us. And what I've done is put aside the planning system, and sorry, I've put aside all of the things that we've talked about and simply said that is a fund- fundamentally flawed system. I looked at West Byron, I looked at nature, I looked at was- what West Byron has, and West Byron is part of a priceless wetland. It's built on ancient sand dunes, 
which are part of this 35 square kilometer wetland. It is critical to, um, there are over 200 species of birds um, that are regularly spotted there. Um, there are 54 threatened species and about 36 endangered species in that area that would be seriously affected by anything else than rehabilitating the wetland. If you rehabilitate the wetland, um, you can make a lot more money out of that because that wetland is worth uh, $300,000 per hectare. That $300,000 per hectare is every 12 months. That is what it gives to us in services, in fresh air, in water, in clean water, um, in food, in fisheries, in, in natural rehabilitation. And that's what that gives to us. If you um, subdivided that, what would it be worth? It would be worth a one-off market value that some people would get and take out of the district. And so I've looked at that and put a value on the wetland and said if we rehabilitate this wetland, um, we can then capitalise on that. It can be turned into a wetland um, discovery centre. We can keep the koala corridors, the wildlife corridors that go through there. We can build a few houses on there. We can put environmental research faculty there, and I've spoken to a couple of the universities, I've sounded that out, and said, yes, if this happened, we can put our environmental research faculties located on that land. We can put a proper environmental resort, not like the um, green washing that elements have done at the moment, but we can put a proper environmental resort in there, and people will come, and this will then become a major tourist attraction for Byron and have something for the 1.4 million tourists that we have every year to look at, to enjoy. And so regarding West Byron, you did a, a, you've been a, a long-time protester and you've been frustrated with what's, what's been happening. So, John, uh, what, was we, what was your response rather than protesting? Instead of protesting, I set that aside and came up with an alternative. I looked at the value of the land, I looked at what the land had and simply came up with a, an alternative master plan which capitalised on the asset, the natural assets that are in West Byron, and you can make a lot more money out of that. If you look at the, if people just want to make money, um, you know, don't speculate and, and come in with the um, speculators and, and, and take all your money out of Byron. Let's leave it in Byron. But if you want to build, say, 800 houses um, or 800 blocks of land, they would be worth, what, about $400,000 each? So what's that, $320 million? Um, $320 million you've got. With my plan, I've just put in 200 houses. So 200 houses, at, but it, it's gonna cost you um, half of that money to develop those. So instead of 320, you've got $160 million. So you've got $160 million on that side. On the other side, I've put in 200 houses. So they're worth, say, um, 400,000 for blocks of land. Um, that's $80 million and um, half of that to develop it, that's worth 40 million. But then if you put in, um, say, a wetland discovery center, that's $5 million. If you put in a research center, that's another $5 million, so that's $50 million. You put in a, a research um, faculty, and that's worth, say, conservatively, another $50 million. Another meeting place, worth, say, $10 million for the community. You put in an eco-resort, and the current eco-resort, um, they say is worth 100 million, say this is worth 50 million. You add all of that up and you get to 200 million dollars. So it's worth a lot more. But the difference there is that if you've got your 160 million 
on speculation and ruining it, you're going to maybe generate that over a 10-year period, so that's $16 million a year. If you've got 160 to 180 on environmental rehabilitation, you can do that in the next five years. So you can make $30 million a year. So on simple economics, it's much more economic to capitalize on the value of nature that you have rather than destroy it in the name of progress. And this is just looking at the micro within this development, but in terms of those uh, wetlands uh, assisting uh, mitigate the, the various heavy rains that come through this community. Uh, w- was there any environmental assessment uh, on that side of, of what would happen to the, the Byron drainage and sewerage system? Would it be flooded uh, continually, having to deal with all this extra water uh, that much uh, more rapidly? The extra water would be maintained in the wetland. The major problem with Byron at the moment is flooding because the whole of Byron, West Byron and the industrial estate is built in a wetland. And they've tried to drain this with the union drains over the years. Um, Wetland Care Australia has already come up with an 80-page report and a plan to say how we can rehabilitate this by filling in the drains, by returning it to a wetland, and that would then take the flood storage capacity, which is taken away by this proposed development. So that means that if we rehabilitate the wetland, we then reduce the flooding in the town centre rather than increase it, which this development will do. Yeah, the um, significance of this wetland, and I don't know if you know about Ramsar wetlands. Ramsar was a convention that was held in the 1970s in um, Ramsar in Iran, where all the countries of the world got together and said wetlands and water is life. Wetlands are critical to our survival, so we must keep all of those wetlands. And so they made a treaty, and that treaty says that we will rehabilitate all the wetlands that we can around the planet. Australia is a signatory to that treaty. And therefore, and Australia has something like over 100 Ramsar wetlands, which are administered by the Commonwealth Government and are rehabilitated. The state government has um, a a blue carbon policy, where blue carbon is carbon that's sequestered in wetlands, which is sequestered at five times the rate of normal rainforests. So wetlands are important to sequestering and reducing carbon. The New South Wales government has funds that they've put to rehabilitate the wetlands all up and down the New South Wales east coast um, because of the importance of wetland. So government's putting money into it. They've already done this near Foster, um, where Wetland Care Australia again did the same thing, that they had a major problem there with their water. So they bought up all the farmlands and they rehabilitated all that. They got the fisheries um, hatching grounds and breeding grounds back to normal. The oyster industry was going out backwards around Wallace Lake and uh, all being poisoned. That's now back to normal because they bought up all this land and rehabilitated the wetland and did it with nature rather than trying to do it with concrete. And so to finish off then, the West Byron project, it's been rezoned at the state level. Um, What state is it at in terms of the local community and their acceptance of that decision? The local community has not accepted that because it will destroy a significant environmental section of Byron. And it is the wetland and it is critical to the wetland and the survival of the bird species, the migratory species, um, the animals, the plants. And it's distressing that the state government is pushing this angle when Byron itself as a community 
can make much more money out of rehabilitating this wetland. It will be much better for nature. We can build houses somewhere else. They don't have to be built on this beautiful, pristine wetland. Well, John Sparks, uh, gee, we could keep talking, but thank you so much for joining us here on The Renegade Economist. My pleasure, and good luck with all the good work that you're doing. Thanks. So that was John Sparks, the architect and town planner, giving some inspiration on uh, the problems he's seen in his community, and his answer was to create uh, the ultimate master plan for uh, Byron Bay proper, and uh, see those seeds of influence spread throughout the community in terms of positive change. So that's what we like here on The Renegades. Interesting to hear that uh, from a a planner's perspective, it's all to do with regulations. That's the problem. Well, here on The Renegade Economists, of course, uh, we we certainly uh, believe it's the economic issue that that drives um, so many of the problems, but there's no doubt about it. There are so many areas uh, in society, in the economy that need reforming and certainly the planning law uh, and some of those rezoning windfalls are at the heart of it. All right, thanks very much for listening to uh, The Renegade Economists. Get in touch via renegades at earthsharing.org.au or on Twitter at earthsharing. All right, thanks for all the donors who've supported the show over the Radiothon period. I look forward to being back with another interesting insight to life on Earth under the economic microscope here on 3CR.